This week on Happy, Sad, Confused, Jay Baruchel on being a proud Canadian, making his directing debut, and the Justice League movie that got away. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused, my podcast. Say hi, Sammy. Hi, Sammy. No, that's too literal. Ugh. I take direction very well. Sammy just got <laughs> back from the VMAs doing... <laughs> Um, stellar work on the carpet and backstage and all sorts of nooks and hey, crannies of the VMAs. What was your favorite part of the VMAs? I watched it all. What was your favorite performance? Um, Rod Stewart? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Honestly, you could be joking, but it's real. He, he was there, I remember. Rod Stewart performed. Um, it Made was... everyone feel really comfortable and happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I felt uncomfortable on my couch in New York. Yeah, it was really um, great. So, yes. Yeah, so, welcome back to New York. Sammy. Thank you so much. You, it's good to be you're back. You're a shell of a woman now. It's really depressing. But you were a shell of a woman already. Yeah, it's just a little worse now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been here holding the fort down, and uh, apologies again for a little bit of a break, but the good news is that there are, oh, I was just telling Sammy about some of the upcoming guests we've got. You guys are going to freak out. We've got a lot of people coming the next mm. few weeks, and and we're also not even going to observe the normal kind of like weekly thing. You're going to get a couple uh, of folks at a time, um, one or two episodes a week, uh, at least the next couple of weeks. So uh, a lot of cool guests, some returning guests. Be you, ready for anything. You will be pleased. Uh, you, there will be blood. <laughs> there will be guests. Um, and this week's guest, uh, hopefully you guys will be pleased with, he is Jay Baruchel, who of course you know from um, many great films. Undeclared was his first big TV uh, show that kind of broke him out. Um, this is the end. Um, uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. What else? <laughs> He's been in a lot of weird, like, kind of random yeah. stuff. He's, this is the end is the big one for me. And, like, was, knocked up, too. Of course, although, knocked yeah. up. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're um, welcome. Um, but we also talk about uh, a film that. Um, has kind of gained cult status in recent years, a film called Goon, that he, I believe he co-wrote it and he starred in it a few years back. It starred Sean William Scott, and it's um, it's about kind of like an enforcer, like a, like a like kind of a, not the smartest guy, uh, but like an enforcer on a hockey team. And it's a really sweet kind of Rocky-ish story that I was really taken with when I saw it a few years back. It was, I think I saw it on VOD, and um, I was just kind of like shocked by, not that I wasn't expecting it to be good, but I'd heard some good buzz about it, and, and Sean William Scott that's great in it, and Leah Schreiber was great in it, and Jay's good in it as well. And and now in the sequel, Jay has uh, assumed the directing duties as well. He's also in the film, of course, but uh, this is his big feature de- uh, directing debut. I was going to say, is this his first? Yeah. Uh, so it's called Goon, Last of the Enforcers. It's out this Friday in theaters, I believe on BOD, etc. cetera. Uh, and you guys should check it out. If you're, I'm not even a hockey fan. I've never followed hockey at all, but uh, it's, a good, it's a really good movie, and it's well-directed, and you're, you're going to hear in this conversation the passion that Jay has as a filmmaker. Um, he's always wanted to direct, even before he was an actor, and um, like truly, he is a film geek's geek. He knows his stuff, and um, as you can imagine, when the two of us got together, we really geeked out on a lot of <laughs> cool things. Um, nerd explosion. Nerd explosion. <laughs> uh, and, w- and one thing I do want to mention, I mean, a couple things I want to mention. I want to mention the fact that um, he is, I mentioned kind of the intro, uh, he's a very proud, and it's kind of like, it's kind of a beautiful thing, a proud Canadian. He lives in Toronto, and he has chosen to kind of like make his life's work about creating um, great films and great roles uh, and great art in Canada. You know, he obviously has opportunities in the States and he works in the States here and there, but he's chosen to make his life where he grew up. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, to hear him talk so passionately about it, I think it's kind of contagious. And it's um, uh, he's carved out a really cool career. He's also now, like, um, uh, part owner of a big like Canadian uh, comic book company. So he, he's just, like, making a cool uh, life for himself there. Um, and, and Goon is an extension of that. 
that. Um, and the, the one on the film geek side I want to mention to kind of tease you guys that are just tuning in now um, is he was he was cast a few years back, well, actually a long time ago now, in a George Miller uh, film that was going to be uh, called uh, Justice League. I think it was called Justice League Mortal. And it was Army Hammer was playing Batman. Do you know about this, Sammy? Have you ever no. talked about this? This is a crazy story. So I'm like Mad Max, George Miller? Yes. Yeah. So, like so, the yes. same George yeah. Miller? So it was before Fury Road, and it was Army Hammer as Batman. I love that. I mean, um, DJ Catrona, who uh, I met a couple times, a very sweet guy. Um, I think he's on From Dust Till Dawn still on uh, El Rey, who's playing Superman. Um, oh, I forget who was playing Wonder Woman. There was a Wonder Woman. Um, Teresa Palmer was playing a bad guy. Um, and Jay Baruchel was playing the bad guy, Maxwell Lord. And there have been many stories about this production. It's fascinating. So what happened? Basically, the plug was pulled by the studio like right before it went. Into- they were all in Australia. They had done costumes. They'd done read-throughs. They were rehearsing. And then they were like, eh, never mind. Basically. Ooh. So there's an extended conversation in this interview, more than, frankly, I've ever heard myself about what that film was going to be. So I think if you're, if you're a superhero fan and if you're a fan of George Miller, like myself, um, stay tuned for that because that is, uh, I think, a special part of this conversation. And I, I was certainly geeking out on what that project would have been. It's one of the great like unrealized film projects of all time. So, uh, so yeah, come for Goon, but stay for Justice League talk. Yeah. Um, and that's about it. Like I said, there's going to be another couple, a uh, few podcasts coming up in the next couple weeks that you guys should keep a lookout for. Sammy and I are going to be headed to the Toronto Film Festival. TIFF. TIFF, as they say. <laughs> TIFF and as the industries. Did I ever tell you how Kristen Stewart made fun of me when I called it TIFF? No. What happened? So a few years back, and I was interviewing <laughs> Kristen. We were sitting down to chat. And I think like my first like I don't even know who was on camera. It might have been on camera. I was like, I how? hope it's on camera. I was like, how's your tiff going? And she looked at me and she was like, tiff. <laughs> it's like is sounds that like you, you asked her something dirty. Like, how's that, your tiff? Is that what you call it? And I was yeah. like, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't trying to sound smart. I thought that's what people called it. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's that's what George Miller calls it. <laughs> it's the Toronto International yeah. Film Festival tiff. Oh. Fuck you, Kristen Stewart. No, no, it's no, all good. Kidding. It's all good. Um, so, yes, if you see Kristen Stewart, ask her how her tiff is going. <laughs> she, she'll be enraged. She will just slap she you. She will punch you in the face. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyway, um, I'm looking forward to that. It's always one of my favorite festivals. And uh, a lot more good stuff. We're going to also do a sketch next week that I know you're very excited about. <gasps> Everyone's going to freak out, including me. More to come on all of that. Enough uh, jibber-jabbering. Let's hear from uh, Jay Baruchel. And remember to check out Goon, Last of the Enforcers, uh, out September 1st. I I, I was saying to to your publicist, actually, surprisingly, despite being at MTV for for 30,000 years, I don't think we've talked... Or if we have only a couple times, so it's it's a real pleasure to see you today. Likewise, man. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a big fan of your work, oh, and uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things. Um, most importantly, uh, everybody needs to check out uh, Goon: Last of the Enforcers. I, I'm honestly a big fan of this, and I was a oh, huge, awesome. I was a huge fan of, of Goon, like what a five or six, five, six, five, five, five years, years ago. ago yeah, um, and it was one of those things where like I think I saw it like a VOD or something. Yeah, to exactly. be honest. Yeah, and I was like, this is. So charming, so winning, oh, cool. filled with a great ensemble, and uh, I'm so pleased that it's it's done so well for you too. Thanks, to man. A sequel. Yeah, thank you. It's it's um, so are we, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, we're just um, 
the, these movies mean a lot to everyone involved, yeah. and they're and I think a testament to that is like how many of the people from the first one we were able to get back, mm-hmm. and um and it was just like it's not always like that. Sometimes you're on a set and everyone's just trying to do their best, and other times you're on a set and everyone has a sort of unity of vision and we all kind of, there's something in the water and you can just kind of sense that we all get what this could be and how cool this could be. And the first goon was one of those. And, um, and yeah, it took us a minute cause we wanted to do it right. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we didn't rush this into production to try to, you know, keep the party going. You know, it was like, we had stories that, and, and stuff that we wanted to tell. Uh, we just wanted to make sure we could do it in the best way possible and with the, the, the uh, requisite means to, do the, to tell the story we needed to tell. Well, and, and I was frankly hardened when I, when I finally you know, got the chance to see the, the new one in that, like, you do have basically the band back together. Yeah. And you have, you know, um, Liev, who, like, I mean, if, you know, he's, for a decade, he's had an amazing career, 15, yeah. 20 years. And it's no like, kidding. oh, is he going to be in one scene? No, he's, he's like a major Yeah, yeah. And, he's uh, got a heavy lifting to do in our flick. Yeah, yeah. And then you add someone like, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're now a big fan as, uh, as I am of Wyatt. Yeah. Wyatt, who seems like... Wyatt's amazing. Wyatt's amazing. And I'm like so proud. Because this is like... His, I think it's the biggest one of the biggest parts he's played yet. Yeah. And um, and I'm and and not only that, it's also a million miles away from if people know him, what they know him for, right. which is usually sort of goofy stoner in you know, and like in the Linklater movie sure. and all that stuff. Um, but there's a hell of an actor in there. Yeah. And 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 I'm sure it's down to a bunch of things. Not the least of which is his pedigree. You know, um, he grew up, Russell, of course, grew yeah. up in the right house. Yeah. Um, and and having worked with his dad and knowing his dad, you know, I've like worked with now two generations of Russell men, and I can see they, if you can work with either of them, yeah. they are so hardworking and easy to be around, and just get it. And and I hate using terms like just get it, but they just do kind of. And um, and it was super cool that like. The night before uh, I was meant to Skype with Wyatt to convince him to do the movie, Kurt called me uh, tipsy from New Orleans, telling me that his son called to ask him for advice, and he never does, and that he was thinking about doing this goon too, and and Kurt said he cut him off right there and said, listen, I'm biased. Yeah, I just want you to know. He goes, I love Jay Baruchel. I don't, he goes, uh, I, I don't know about the first movie, but I know that this one's going to be better because he's directing it. You got to do it. You got to meet him. You'll either fall in love with him or not. He goes, and I'm just like, I'm just looking forward to to being proud with you guys at the premiere. So like, it was like, Kurt Russell's <laughs> a huge part of casting Wyatt in my movie. It's pretty cool. That's amazing. One of the, one of the great pleasures of, uh, of this podcast is having like the people like, you grew up with and Kurt was in here like a year oh amazing amazing oh my god yeah like talk to you know um Snake Plissken. There's so many. It was yeah. just, and he's he's everything you want him to He be. is, and he loves chatting it up, and he loves telling stories. Like some guys, I've you know, twenty plus years I've been acting, and and some of the uh, old guys and girls don't love talking about some stuff, um, and some stuff is of like some stuff that you care about is is irrelevant to them. Right. You know, like I've many times. You know, eating crow for going out on a limb to give somebody love and having them like diminish it in this in a second. I totally and, know what you're saying. And it's, I, I mean, I'll call it out. I remember what, this isn't like saying anything bad about a person, but I remember talking to Gary Oldman, yeah, it's like I, I yeah, revere yeah. and uh, like mentioning Fifth Element to yeah. him and him being like, oh god. So <laughs> for me, it was Cronenberg. I, I I I got to work with Cronenberg, and I just told him I was like, I just I want to hear about Videodrome, man, and yeah. and his answer was that's old shit. And that was the end of the conversation about Videodrome. I was like, yeah, fair, fair. Um, but Kurt, 
loves to tell stories and loves and and he really he knows how cool it is the life he's had and he knows that the reason he's had a cool life is because people love his movies and so he's like when he meets someone especially someone our age who you know were kids growing up with his movies um it's 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 a really big deal for him and so that that was the coolest by by far yeah he had no he had no trouble dropping into like jack burton quotes right my brain just melted it's amazing (laughs) it's amazing um i I know that like directing uh, because i've been i've been following your career and reading up on, on some of the stuff you've been talking about lately in support of this film that directing is not something you just come to lightly. This is this. If anything, this was the thing you actually wanted to do first, yeah. even before acting. Honestly, man, and and I and I hate and I always worry when I say that the people um, infer that I like am disrespectful to acting or don't. But but no, it's just acting has been very good to me and to my family, and I've gotten to do some pretty awesome stuff. All the same my dreams have been on hold for 20 plus years and like nine was when I knew I wanted to direct 12 was my first year on set and even at 12 mom said to me you want to go to film school being on set's the best film school in the world so I've been on film school for 20 years it's not like um I, I have nothing to prove as an actor I don't have anything I haven't done to me that I need to get out there I have loads to prove and loads of story inside of me as a director and loads of stories I want to tell um, and so acting was always a means to an end. It, it's not something like I loved. And then after being on enough sets, I was like, oh, I think I could maybe do that. Like, right. they, you know, so I also, I don't know that that's the right reason to be a director because, and, and, and I'm going to get waxed super religious and poetic here, but like, I think, uh, cinema is the greatest art form the world has ever come up with. And I think in the 21st century, there's precious little that's sacred, one of the few things that I see as sacred is the relationship between uh, um, someone that makes a movie and the audience. And and I think that to get to be a director is uh, one of the world's great privileges. And so and I and it um, and I've worked for directors that I think that was lost on. You know, and, or who who might think that was lost on? And I uh, and yeah, and took it for granted, or didn't seem to like have a bunch a burning need to do something. It was sort of you know, it's fine. It was sort of journeyman, I guess, I suppose. But like, I I I just like I have a. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd live in the gutter if it meant I could, li- I could, I, I, I could direct again. Like that's like, I'm constantly threatening to sell my house if it helps finance something. Like I, I will do whatever it takes. I'll bleed for my shit. So, um, so this was a very big deal, obviously. So what, uh, can we talk a little bit about kind of reference points and falling in love with kind of movies as a mm-hmm. kid in terms of like what were, where, when did you kind of fall in love with the, the, the church that is? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of flashpoints of my childhood would be um, mom and dad uh, not just showing me Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but pausing it constantly to explain to me the mechanics of the joke that was just on screen. Literally, mom would like pause at a funny caption or a funny bit of credits, and, 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 she'd, be, and she'd be like, this is called dry humor. <laughs> and you see how he referenced the, the, the dancing mule earlier? That's as a callback. <laughs> and, and they would literally, like, it was a very proactive kind of film and comedy education. And then, and then it was dad, the first tape dad bought me um, uh, for my ninth birthday. I think it was a Ferris Bueller's Day Off on VHS. And, and my parents, to their credit, kept getting me movies. I kept buying movies. And they kept getting me books about movies. Like, when I was a kid, there weren't a ton of 
dinosaur books in my room. It was all either film uh, critiques or I'd get the uh, the like in-house guide that a video store has of like what every all inventory available right, right now. Right. So I would just spend hours in my room reading synopses, reading reviews, committing to memory uh, plots and then directors and actors and movies I've never seen. And I just memorize all of them. And then on top of that, every Friday night and Saturday night, Dad would rent um, a minimum of one, usually two movies. And if I woke up the next day and the next morning and the tape was still in the machine, it meant I was allowed to watch it. And as I was always up before my folks, if it was back in this case, it meant it was too racy. But what this translated to is, is it looks like is like every weekend for most of my childhood, two to four movies, no matter what, wow. no matter what. And, uh, and, and like I said, I get up early before my folks. So it was me and the movie and, um, and I haven't stopped collecting. I'm like, I'm still the putz that buys hard copies. I buy Blu-rays. Like I, it's a point of pride that my house, I've got like five bookshelves filled with DVDs and Blu-rays nice. and I still buy them. And I, um, there's, I, I like that collection. How are they organized? Are they oh organized? yeah. Alphabet. Yeah. Not genre, not director. Not yet. <laughs> I, I I had to get them up there first. Right. No, that's a huge <laughs> it was a it was a two day, three or four person job. So <laughs> yeah, my friends, my 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 friends earned brownie points those days. So what was um you know Canadian cinema for mm-hmm. you growing up? Yeah. Did that mean something? What was what what, what it, I mean? You mentioned Cronenberg. Yeah. Obviously, he yeah. comes to the top of the list. But like, what did that mean to you growing up? Uh, he was my hero. And still is, and um, especially as I got to be like a teenager and uh, became a big Fangoria kid, and knowing that like he wasn't just a guy, he was the guy. Like every horror director wishes they were David Cronenberg. Yeah. Like he's the he's the horror director that gets like uh, fancy person cred. Right. And and I it was always a point of pride to me that like not just a horror director, but the world's best horror director, not only is Canadian, but made all his films in Canada and still lives in Canada. And that was um, such a uh, inspiration because we we grow up uh, seeing all of our best kind of exported super early. Um, the only time I'd see Canadian celebrities uh, or anything like in Canada was when work dried up for them elsewhere. And then they'd come home because the CBC is the only place that would hire them. And it like leaves a really sour taste in your mouth and that coupled with never going to the cinema and seeing a movie that takes place where you're where you're from has a strange cultural repercussion and i think like americans and brits uh, take it for granted that you go to your cinema and your cinema is a reflection of your country and your culture well it's not like that in canada all right we go to our cinema and it's all foreign films american but that's still foreign that's not ours um so i knew that uh, I was going to give my life to Canadian cinema for better or worse at about 15, 16. Mm-hmm. And how I'd reasoned it out of my head, because I was still a child actor at that point, was like, work will probably dry up for me around 18, 19. If I've saved any money, I'll go to film school. When I'm done film school, if I have anything left, um, I will live off of that. If I don't, I'll just get a job. Hopefully at a video store was, was the goal. And then I'll just write straight to videos and try and get them made. Because there wasn't... I'm a video kid. So I love going to the movie theater. Of course I do. And some of my greatest memories are in the movie theater. But most aren't. Most are at home. Yeah. And, and we, um, we didn't discern. We, we would rent whatever looked cool. 
And and there's a you know and and I like I talked to Rogan about this about how there's all these movies that we watched when we were kids in Canada that we didn't realize never came out in theaters. They were just like cool looking stuff on the shelf that we rented. And so I got exposed to all sorts of stuff, and I never thought that it was like beneath somebody to make a straight to video. Like I was like, if I make movies, if I get to write and direct a movie and someone funds it. That's all there is. I don't care about the the size of the audience. That's neither here nor there. I just want to be able to make movies. Um, so that was the goal. That was the mission I was on. And then at 18, I got hired in the States on Undeclared. And, and, and I'm not, dude, please, I am not complaining about the American career I've had since then. But all the same, I thought I'd be getting into this at 18, 19, 20, and I'm now 35. So it's like, and, and you know, because also when you're a film nerd, you have stupid mile markers that you want to hit. Like you're aware of how old Brana was when he did Henry V or, or, or Orson Welles. Screw it up for everybody. Yes, they fucking do, man. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, I want to, the goal was to get, I, if I can't get Orson's number, then 23 or 24, I want to get uh, Brana 26. But I, I, I miss both. But it's not like I wasn't doing anything else cool, so, you know. But. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny. Brana comes up on this podcast all the time because I was obsessed with him as a kid, partially because of what he was doing, but also because he was like, yeah, he was so young. He was relatable in yep. a way, even though if he was doing Henry V was a little beyond my right. my small brain. <laughs> right. was still like, oh, God, this guy's like. He adapted younger. adapted Shakespeare. And made it cool and like. Directed action, like action it. Film and in and starred in it. <laughs> and he was 26. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, um. Yeah, those those people spoil it for the rest of us. It's you know there'll always be somebody who did it earlier. <laughs> so and backtracking even before undeclared, I know um, fellow guest of this podcast, Alicia Cuthbert, mm-hmm. think, uh, have um, a similarity in that your kind of big break was uh, popular I, mechanics, exactly, which I know is even uh, was a, a big thing for you still in Canada. Yes, it is. It's still the thing that I think her and I get recognized for the most. And I'm sure they're, when people do it, they're well aware that we've had careers after, sure. but they think they're being quite clever. Uh, um, At the time, was that kind of like, were you self-aware enough to know, like, this is not what I want to do, but hey, it's kind of cool? Like It was definitely, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't enjoy doing that show a ton because um, acting is what you just described, of like, it's not what I want to do, but it's cool. Right. Hosting is, is, is not, you know? And, and, you know, think about how shitty you feel about yourself when you're 15, and and yeah, and, and you're in a whole like oh fucking hell. And I was like, I didn't I didn't get my growth spurt till I was 17, so I was like an undersized kid at 15 with all the hormones that any 15 year old has. Um, and yet I was like doing this goofy thing. Like I'll never forget it's like this fucking great. Like this is the this is I can this sums up how I feel about popular mechanics uh, as best I can. There's two two events. One was going to Bristol, Connecticut at five in the morning to go to the Otis Elevator Testing Facility to pretend that I was interested in how elevators are tested. Uh, so it, it's just not interesting. It just isn't. Uh, and then number two is we were doing the. Um, uh, uh, the uh, beginning, middle, and end, like our, our talkie bits for the, our uh, roller coaster amusement park episode. And so we were at La Ronde, uh, the uh, amusement park in Montreal. And, uh, but it was open. To, it was like a summer day and it was open. And there's all these people my um, age out having teenage lives and falling in love. And I was just like, hi, guys. Um, so we're going to talk about centrifugal force. And I remember. Posting up, they just in, in their infinite wisdom, they decided the best place for me to do these throws 
was at the foot, at the entrance of the biggest uh, uh, roller coaster at Laurent, Le Monstre, the monster. And, um, and I will never forget these three fucking asshole Anglo kids. So Montreal, you're Anglo, you're Franco. And these are Anglos. These are for, in my side of the city. And these fucking three asshole kids. There's an idiot, idiot's girlfriend, and idiot's friend. And, uh, and, and, and I see them pointing and they're whispering and they're making fun and he, she's got his arm around him and they're laughing at my expense. And I'm just like, this is, this is a fate worse than, I know I'm being paid. It doesn't change it. And, um, and then they start and they're like, the psychological repercussions of this will last. And they go, days. all right, action, Jay. And as they say, action, Jay, and I start doing my throw, the roller coaster starts to go up and idiot's friend, this ginger in a backwards baseball cap just goes, faggot. And I was like. So back to centrifugal force, and hopefully I don't kill myself today. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, but, but that being said, I did get to see some cool shit. I got, I got to spend th- uh, three nights on the uh, USS Eisenhower um, aircraft carrier in the U.S. Navy. That was pretty cool. I got to spend a day on a Trident submarine uh, at dock, but that was still quite neat. I got to spend a day uh, behind the scenes working with all the guys at the Universal Studios Stunt Spectacular. So, and, and I got to, there on our special effects episode, I got to um, hang out with these prosthetic makeup artists and, and see all of that stuff and like I said I was a fango kid so that was real cool so there was some cool shit but more often than not it was just like you know because also when you're a kid do you when you're 15 do you like 15 year old stuff no you like (laughs) 20 30 year old facing stuff and so no 15 year old wants to be hosting a kid's show you know like I'm saying uh, yeah do you still get uh, offered hosting things because people still see that at the beginning of the resume (laughs) (laughs) I do I don't enjoy it I've I've hosted uh, one just for last gala, okay. and then I and I hosted one award show. It was in Canada. We had this thing called the Polaris Prize, which is uh, once a year, um, top music critics in Canada vote the best record, um, and they give it thirty thousand dollars, whoever it is. And that can be a first timer, that can be Drake, literally. Nice. Um, and I I hosted that one night. Um, that was a fate worse than death. There's look at that, so unprofessional. Uh, please, that was a fate worse than death because it was just a, a room full of hipsters that had no idea who I was and they didn't <laughs> seem to find my sense of humor very funny. I wrote some, me and Jacob Tierney wrote some wicked fucking jokes for that thing. Wrong and, audience. Uh, wrong audience. <laughs> no, your audience, the first rule of hosting. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> so um, you mentioned Undeclared, which uh, you know set your career on a, a different path, a good path for mm-hmm. a while. Um, did it feel like, I mean, you talk about those were the years that, that spawned kind of like a, a, the biggest chunk of living in yeah, the States, right? definitely. So at the time, I mean, you were resolute, it sounds like, from the beginning. Like, this, I'm, I'm going to end up back in Canada. Yeah. That's, that's who I am. Yeah. I want to I produce things that reflect my, my yeah. upbringing, et cetera. For better or worse. That, that being said, that the, especially in those first couple of years, I would think that's when the, big ex, the most exciting first opportunities started yep. to come. Yep. Was there any kind of, like, wrestling with that? Did no, f- no, never. No, we, I'd argue about it with friends of mine. Uh, we... Very interesting, I think, philosophical debate that um, friends of mine in the States who are from Canada, um, some of whom are far more famous than I am, we would have, we'd all, before any of us could get hired, when we were all just like stoners with time to spare in LA, um, 
I uh, was always the movie nerd. We all love movies, but I always could tell everybody who the director was right. and that this was Andrew Davis's third film and all this stuff. And it's, uh, you know the work of Andrew Davis yeah, beyond the fugitive, then you know exactly, some shit. That's exactly right, man. Um, yeah, Above the Law, I think, is, is number three for him. Uh, no, actually, it's one of the Chuck Norris ones. Anyway, but, but we would have this big philosophical debate about, like, uh, what would you rather have? A smaller soapbox, but more control and, and uh, a degree of patriotism or civic duty behind it? Or a larger soapbox with less control right. and nothing to do with your country? You know, and the thinking, uh, I was always firmly entrenched on the other side, the small side. The thinking on the large side was that if you get to a point, if you can navigate and survive the studio system in L.A. and get to the top of it, you no longer have to suffer those notes and all that stuff, right. which, by the way, is horseshit, number one, because what happens is simply by virtue of, of having gone through it so many times, maybe it's born of self-defense, you start chest-moving those notes. You start pre internalized it all. You, it's, you, it's happening anyway. You pre censor. You've become the monster. <laughs> you censor before you have to. Yeah. You just assume it's not worth it. There's no way they're going to go for this. There's no way they're going to go for that. That's not this. That's not that. And I and I just find that not for me. And and for me, you know. And and I I'm a I, I'm a Hollywood film fan. I'm like I, I love a bunch of independent films, but I'm not like some Dogma ninety five guy. Like I I love the same movies that we're all talking about here, but. I I I I I want to create in my country and it sounds like insane because but my country's small and a baby you know like mine is 30 million one tenth the population of this country and who knows if there is a Canada in 100 years and we are constantly we 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 were uh, fighting to define our own culture against uh, Great Britain, and then eventually, and then that shifted to finding to define our own culture against the United States, yeah. and um, and I know that let's say I I, I and, and and by the way, like I, if you can get a movie made in the states, you should be so fucking lucky, you know. And 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 I and that would be lovely, but I would be just another guy, and 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 it would be a movie. If I can make movies back home, and I live there, and I'm from there, and I can get butts in the seats, it means something. And there's and our tapestry, our sort of shared collective cultural tapestry in Canada, is is a pretty thin little rug. Mm. It's there, but it's thin. I've already added to it with the first goon, you know, and um, and and I I can't ever hope to do something like that here, right? And um, and also my mom's family are all soldiers and cops, and I never I never joined the army, and I never served the way that I've always thought I should, and so there's this is a, a way to actually at least a portion of it, yeah. yeah. Were you ever able to? Have you ever discussed any of this with someone like Cronenberg, who has? committed as you say his life to kind of uh I, I i told him that he was like a source of inspiration for sure it's not just about what he's done it's it's how he's, he's done, done it and the way he's yeah. done it and and that the two weren't mutually exclusive for him that like he wanted his kids to have normal lives and and he also just liked where he lived i think yeah. you know and 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 if you're Cronenberg, you get people to come to Toronto. If you're Fellini, you get people to come to Rome. If you're Peter Jackson, you'll go to Auckland or Wellington. You know, like you can do it. It's there to be done. And I just think that people take the convenient path of least resistance more often than not. Uh, I'm headed to Toronto for a oh, film for festival TIFF, yeah. very soon. I've been going for almost a decade. Oh, and awesome! And, and I always love it. What's I mean? What's do you, you must have 
a different perspective. Sure, sure. Um, I've never seen. I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie at. I've seen one movie at TIFF that I wasn't a part of. Okay. Uh, I saw The Witch last oh, yeah. year or two, two years, years ago. Probably, yeah. And uh, um, no, um, I I I only my intro to TIFF was always through bringing a movie that I was in yeah. or something. Um, and and now that I live there, I I sort of stay clear of downtown while it's happening if I can. Sure. Um, but what I love what I what I love about it is that I I think it's already if it hasn't it's about to replace can in terms of its import and its weight um, and because it's over here and and because it's open to the fucking public. Yep. That's what sets it apart to me. And you know all that it's I think Tiff is missing really is a competition. A true competition, a la can once because they have juries, they do all that stuff. They give out awards, but they don't have like nothing's in competition. If if Toronto gets a competition, that's it. And 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 what I love is that it's just so much more humble. It's for everyone, and yet still the biggest stars in the world come. It's it's um and it's ours, and it's like, it's it's anything that gets the world to come to Canada is a big deal for me. So, so let's talk. Uh, I know we've been jumping around, but we should talk yeah. more specifically about Goon and its sequel that's that's about to come out uh, here in the states. Um, I mean, there's a lot that that I love about both of these films. Um, awesome. Well, I mean, one thing that I, I, I'm struck both times by Sean William Scott's performance. He's amazing. He's he's truly great. Yep. Yep. He, he's got in like, not just good in comparison to how you think he is. No. He's just good. Period. No, and and. And it, it sucks that he hasn't. I don't yeah. know if gotten opportunities in recent years or what. I don't know. I don't know where he's at in his personal. I life think or it's like I mean, a yeah. I think he got sick of doing riffs on Stifler. Yeah. And uh, but he's a huge movie nerd. Sean really is. And like, like when Sean and I text, it's literally about like, <laughs> like four years ago. It's like, hey, did you see Elite Squad? Yeah. Did you see Elite Squad number two? Like Sean sees everything. Wow. He's that guy. He's like me. He goes to Amoeba, buys it all, sees it all, rents it all. Like, he, he really loves movies. He really, really does. And I think he got, yeah, I think he got a bit sort of tired or, or, or even stung that he loves movies so much and he doesn't get to be a part of the types of movies he'd like to be yeah. in, you know? I, with the exception of, like, Southland Tales, which even though it's, like, a weird, crazy <laughs> flick, at least it's something. It's going for something. It's going yeah. for something. And, and, I, and I'm so proud that our movie gets to show the world what he has inside him. Because it's, it's, a, it's a tough role to pull it is. off. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's... If he didn't say yes, we'd have no replacement. Like, we did, there probably wouldn't be a movie. Right. Because, I mean, it's kind of a little bit of kind of the Rocky thing yeah. in that, like, he's not a bright guy. No. <laughs> he's like a, a cross between, like, Forrest Gump and Superman. <laughs> right. You know, like, like and, and Chauncey Gardner a little bit, I guess, too. Like, he, he, he belongs to no era, uh, Doug. And, and what Sean has to do in this movie, he has to do the normal number one stuff of carrying the movie on his shoulders. He's got to be funny when we need him to be funny. He's got to be hard as shit when we need him to be hard as shit. And he's got to be lovable and likable and heartbreaking in those moments, too. Now, those three things are a bit kind of contradictory, mutually exclusive-ish. How do, you have a guy, how do you have a guy be this pussycat and have the audience buy that he can, like, brain somebody? Right. And, and you do with him. And, and, and it's down to how smart and honest he is and that he is just like big boy from Minnesota. The, I'm not a hockey fan. I never have. Right. I've never gone to a hockey match oh, in my okay. life. Right. And so, again, I think that speaks well to what you've, you guys have accomplished. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's huge. Yeah. Um, because I, I would think when, when, you, when you made both of these films and you've directed the second one, you, you wrote and starred in, in the first one, of course, um, that 
I, well, you tell me, like, who were you making it for? Mm. Were you thinking about sort of like, I want this to be this era's slap shot, mm. et cetera? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we, we thought, we always knew best case scenario, it becomes our generation slap shot. Uh, and that's in spite of, or despite all of us, like, liking it, but not loving it the way our dads did. Right. Like, we all grew up in, with dads who are firmly entrenched in the cult of Slapshot. And, like, don't get me wrong, Slapshot makes me laugh super hard in most of it. But I don't, um, it just doesn't mean as much to me as it does to guys my dad's age sure. and all that stuff. No, who, um, this is who we wanted to make the movie for. Uh and, and I don't and, and, and I don't want anyone who doesn't fall into this category to feel alienated or that you're not welcome. We want everyone who likes our movie to like our movie. All are welcome. But at the same time, when you set out to make something for everyone, you will make something for no one. So you've got to make something for somebody. And so we it's made the specificity that, that's, that makes it resonate. And that's, that's what makes it universal. Yeah. And 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 we made it for I've been saying um, we didn't do it for guys in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. We did it for guys in Halifax and Winnipeg and Calgary. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, it's for um, lower middle class, regular Canadians, taxpayers who deserve, who go to the cinema all the time, go to the Cineplex, love a big blockbuster, love a good entertaining comedy, and never get to see one about them. And so we wanted to give them a movie that, looks just as slick and sexy and upmarket and big as the big American flick that costs four times as much as us next door. Yeah. We want, you know, it, and, and, and we, we, there's an aesthetic hump that I think, uh, you know, and this doesn't apply to Egoyan or Cronenberg, but there's like an aesthetic hump that a lot of, and especially mainstream kind of Canadian cinema, as thin as it is, had to get past. And I, and, and, and I think we did that with the first goon. I don't think like it looks like a tax shelter movie. And, and so we went even further in that, uh, down that road in number two, like there's only two handheld shots in all of last of the enforcers and they're meant to be recreating uh, news footage. I very, had a very, very specific instinct for the aesthetic of this movie. Um, I was like, it has to be classicist. I want all, all of my favorite directors, all of the easy riders, raging bulls guys, they're all uh, children of David lean, right? Right. It's all David lean. And then, and, 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 and that's, and their movies mean the most to me. And David Lean's movies mean a great deal to me. And I was like, this is the tradition I grew up in. And I, and I got really mad at this aesthetic that saturated TV and cinema in the last 10 years, where um, it's like, if you like electronic music, if you like synthesizer music, you know when it sounds like shit. And when it sounds like shit, it's because anybody, the guy's just put, pressing the, the preset. He's not even coming up with his own sound. He's playing the preset. Right. Like J.J. Abrams' famous theme for Lost is a preset sound. Um, and now cameras have that. They come out of the factory broadcast ready. Right? You don't have to endeavor to find your image and to make it beautiful. You, you can, but you don't need to. And so now everything looks kind of the same. Everything's handheld. And by the way, it makes sense if you're a producer, you just spray everything down, get as much fucking footage hanging there. Oh, but there's no intention and there's no, you know. And I, and those, that's not what is important to me. I think of Close Encounters. I think of JFK. I think of The Fugitive. You know, I think of Last of the Mohicans. I, I think of Braveheart. I, you know, the, these are, and, and these are all movies done in that old classic tradition. Yeah. And so, and I thought, especially considering how, sort of foul and coarse and blue-collar and rough-around-the-edges our movie is, 
the more Ben-Hur we make it, the better. And so I kept saying it's a hoser puck opera. It's a cross between Trailer Park Boys and Ben-Hur, you know, <laughs> and that's not two forms I've ever really seen together. Amazing. Well, you, yeah, you, you basically just listed like five of my favorite films. Oh, wicked. In that, in that rant. Terrific. Just, they, they're re-releasing Close Encounters, as you probably know. Are you serious? Yeah. I did not years. know that. I just saw it on the big screen. Are they, is it a different, like, do they I, do it, anything it, with it? Well, you, as you know, there are like a few different versions. Yeah, right? yeah. I think, I think it's like the... It's not the one where he goes into the spaceship. Oh, okay, okay. So I think it's like the director's cut, uh-huh. not like the uh-huh. extended. Gotcha, like, gotcha, gotcha. It looks amazing. It's and that's great. the only movie he ever wrote. I know. I think he co-wrote. I think he has a co-writing credit on AI, bizarrely. Oh yeah, he might. He might have. Some, like, as he was going over to England and with and and like staying, he spent a lot of time at his at his house in England. They they developed that thing together for like two three years. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, it's worth seeing. It's fascinating. Awesome. Um, so, oh, what was I going to say? So we talked a little bit about the cast. Uh, one thing, not to put you on the psychology. Couch, uh, couch, but you do direct your ex. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, tell me about kind it. Of fascinating. Yeah. Allison yeah. Pill, who's obviously a wonderful actor. Agreed. Yeah, was in the first goon as well. Um, no, it was definitely something for us to figure out. Hundred <laughs> percent. No, that's not something that most first-time directors have to, to reckon with. No, I don't think they do. And 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 I think it spe- speaks volumes about her and my uh, dysfunctions or how artsy we are. Um, <laughs> no, but literally, like we lived together, we broke up. Three years went by. I saw her at the table read, and then and then two days later, I'm directing her to give birth. <laughs> and um, but what's awesome? Would you is recommend the, this for other people just sorting out uh, complicated relationships? I'll say it. It, it prepares you for shooting hockey. Um, it, it makes hockey easy. No, no, she's an awesome person, and she's an awesome actor and an awesome artist, and. And I mean that sincerely, and and I and 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 this is what I mean about how dyed in the wool kind of artsy her and I are. Once Jesse, my writing partner, and I realized that we not realized, just owned up to the fact that Doug and Eva would still be together. So if Doug and Eva are still together, that means Eva's in the movie. If Eva's in the movie, it means Allison has to be in the movie, or at least we have to offer it to her. I can understand if she doesn't want to do it, but it's hers to lose, and and uh, and. When we said we want to make another one, do you want to be Eva? Yes. And 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 neither. And it's like we're not like text buddies. We're not acquaintances. We have nothing to fucking do with each other. But but we respect each other as as artists. And we had a blast on the first film. And we're both huge fans of the first film. And and also, Allison wouldn't do it if she thought it was shit. And uh, and she's like not in the habit of doing people favors, and uh, and especially not this my blanky ass. <laughs> so like, it was she 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 saw what we were trying to do, and um, and for me, more often than not, it wasn't my ex on set. I was just uh, spoiled for riches with one of the world's great actresses. Sure. Mm. Um, so as a fellow film geek, I want to uh, hit you up on a couple of people you've worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, Infamously, you almost worked with, but you spent some time. Oh, Miller! Yeah, Miller. that's the heartbreaker, buddy. I know. I know. I know you've talked that's about the heartbreaker. The no, I haven't. Not nearly enough. So I, I'm obsessed with George Miller. As I'm you sure and me both, are. bud. I mean, you and me uh, both. And that last film he directed was probably yep. my favorite of the last five or ten years. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Genius. Same here. Um, so for context, you were in the other Justice League movie that was going to happen. That yeah, you guys were all in Australia. I think. Yeah, you it was called all- Justice League Mortal. And um, and it was uh, written by uh, this writing this guess I think uh, the what are they called Mulroney's I forget their name but uh, it was a writing team mm. and um, and it was kind of a riff on the Infinite Crisis line mm. storyline and um, and I and it was uh, 
Yeah, I went in. I I, I I met with Miller after sending my tape in, and we were in all, and all of our tapes had to just be any monologue we liked. So I did the like you can't handle the truth thing as I found my way of doing it. And I was shooting Tropic Thunder at the time, so I was like in between takes. So I had camo on my face, and I was in fatigue, so it worked perfectly. And then I went in for the meeting, and next thing I know, they're like, "Yeah, okay, so they want you in Sydney next week for rehearsal." Oh and um, so that was cool, and to be in a superhero movie. And I was going to get to be the bad guy. Yeah, you were Maxwell Lord. I was Maxwell Lord. Um, uh, now, now, not your dad's Maxwell. I was going to say, everything about this film, everybody was younger than you yeah. usually had yep. seen them. Yep. The fact that you were playing the villain and you were probably in your late 20s or something. I was, time, and like, that specific villain. Yeah. You know, because he's not like the Joker. You know, like this. A lot of people, <laughs> no idea who the fuck he is. Yeah, it was going to be me and then uh, Therese Palmer as Talia Ghul. Right. And uh, <laughs> strange. That's, but what I loved about it, though, was how fucking specific it was and shamelessly, like, they just had a vision. So I get down to Australia and we do this read through. And, the fir- and, and um, Nico, the guy that co wrote Fury Road with Miller, was there as his dramaturg. And he said, uh, Nico's here. What we're going to do, we're, we're going to do, they picked up the script. They said, this is just paper. This is just a document. We don't care about the document. So we want to remove you from the document. So first table read. Anytime you have a line of dialogue to say, don't say your line. Say your character's name, the word says, and then the line. So everyone's Batman says, Superman says, Maxwell Lord says. And, and, and we did all of this really deep Stella Adler acting class type shit. But it was only for about four hours a day, and the rest of the time we were in Sydney. But you know, and um, and it was just like working with one of the greatest at Kennedy Miller at their headquarters, yeah. and um, and at that point they had built so much of the movie. They had all the costume design, they had all the previs, they had all of the sort of production design figured out, and so they would take us and walk us through this um, yeah command center where they had everything, all of the art up, and and. The, the aesthetic choices that they were making and the story and character choices they were making are so ballsy and we won't ever see it. What do you think it would have like felt like? Can you even like compare it to anything? I'm, I mean, this is going to go down. It already has. It's one of the, the great unrealized. Yeah, like Hodorowski's Dune kind of. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's there's actually about. It, now it's coming. They're they're <laughs> they're trying to do one. Well, that's the other reason that I was so rooting for Fury Road. In addition to being like Mad Max, like Road Warrior is one of the first films Mum ever showed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and but also I knew everyone involved in Fury. It was the same team from right. Justice League, and. Um, and the, 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 how would it have felt? I, I, it was, imagine, um, imagine Miller doing Snyder. Like, that's the way I could describe it because it was very uh, tableau and it was very, very, uh, uh, it, it, they were paintings. And, yes, like and, and then what the characters were doing had such teeth to it. Like, there was a scene where I brainwash, or Maxwell Lord brainwashes uh, Clark, um, and all of a sudden, this guy's got Superman as a weapon. Uh, but in order, for the process for me, because I can always control people's minds and my nose bleeds a little, for me to get into a Kryptonian brain, 
my pitch was, and we were going to do it, and Miller loved it, was it's not just a nosebleed. I start bleeding out of every fucking orifice in my head because it takes that much to get in the Kryptonian brain. And then I do, and I turn him into full red-eye Superman, and then there's this big-ass fight between him and Wonder Woman where, she, where he breaks her fucking wrists and shit, like, and, 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 and then I die halfway through the movie, and then my consciousness is uploaded into a fucking mainframe, then I'm an evil computer. The first time you see Wonder Woman, the opening scene on Themyscira... I, it was just her. It's her on top of a steed. There's a minute, and she she stood about half a kilometer away from a minotaur. Minotaur's got a battle axe in his hand, and she just rushes him. All the Amazons are there cheering her on, and she just beheads him. Gets off her steed and holds up the minotaur thing, and she doesn't say a goddamn thing. And I was like, "That's the Wonder Woman I want to see." You know, um, it, it would have been special. And 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 for me, selfishly, personally, like. Um, so while we're there, they start booking houses for all of the, the Justice League. And I, and they're not asking me. And I, I, I said, so are you guys going to find like, well, we think you're only in 12 scenes. We think you're going to go back and forth. And I'm like, well, A, that's a lot of travel. B, that's a bummer. I'm having fun. And so I said to George, I was like, you know, I don't, how long do you want me here? Because I'm only in 12 scenes. So if you want me to just come in and go, that's, that's absolutely fine. I'm happy to be here. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. He goes, I want you here the whole time for two reasons. I want you here, one, because I don't want to break up our team. I want to keep the posse together. You're a, you're a company. You're a repertory company. Number two, and this is the heartbreaker. He said, I know you have an interest in cinema, and I want you to be here every day to shadow me like I did with Mel on Thunderdome. He literally offered me an apprenticeship. So, like, and I was like, there's no way on earth I'm going to do this without my agents giving me shit for being taken off the market as an actor. I was wrong because everybody knows who Miller is. Yeah. And so when I told my agent at CAA that I'd been offered an appraisal, he's like, oh, you take that That's fucking op- opportunity. Get ultimate grad school. <laughs> get there. Pay for yourself to be there. Yeah. No. So, um, and then it was like, I went home on December 23rd, January 7th, we'll be back in Sydney. Uh, January 6th, I got the call, it's not happening. DJ Catrona, my buddy who's going to play Superman, right. who's on the From Dust Till Dawn yep. TV show, um, he had it far worse. They, he didn't get the call the day before. He was, with, he was standing with his luggage in front of his place in L.A. The town car was pulling up as he got the phone call, you're not going. And the driver said, I'm here to take you to the airport. He said, no, I'm not. He's like, I'm pretty sure I am. He's like, buddy, I just got the call, please. My heart's broken. I'm going back inside. <laughs> Literally had his bag packed. Yeah. And he had been there. I was only in Sydney for two two weeks. Um, he had been there. Him and Army uh, Hammer had each been there for like two or three months at that point, training to be Batman and Superman. Yeah. If the actual doc doesn't happen, I want to do like a ten part podcast. Oh, fucking making of I mean, I, buddy, the <laughs> story and the crazy anecdotes, and I'll, you know, maybe it'll come up uh, why we referred to ourselves as Hobo League of Australia and all this. Like, <laughs> we had a, we had a good time. Oh my god. Um, one other film I can't let you go without mentioning is, is Tropic Thunder. Which, That's a good flick. I mean, it's more than a good flick. It's, it's an amazing yeah. film. Um, you're kind of like the straight guy yep. in, in that story, which is, yeah. again, a, a, a tough a role. And yeah. I would imagine tough to kind of like keep it together opposite one of like the great comedic performances ever, that yeah. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, him and, and Jack Black. Sure. Like, and, and Stiller's killing it, too. And it was very hard to keep a straight face. Um, but I, I, I love being the straight guy. I, 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 so what I did, this is the end. It's, it's what I did in Man Seeking Woman too. I, I, I set everyone else up so they can drive the puck to the net. And, and I, and I, and I, 
like it. Um, and it has no, no movie or story worthwhile functions without that character. Yeah. The audience needs to see themselves in somebody. Um, that being said, yeah, it was, I was corpsing constantly. And, um, but what was so cool was that it was not just that. It was it was it 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 scratched three itches. The shooting of Tropic Thunder was. Um, I got to be around, in my opinion, like the funniest people on earth, and I and I would go so far as to say I think that that's Black's best work and Downey's best work. Um, that's that would be enough. Also, as like a red-blooded Canadian that grew up loving GI Joe and action movies and and playing cops and robbers, getting to put on fatigues and fire an M16 every day for six months was the greatest. And then the film nerd in me was watching, you know, one of the last great old school style practical films. Yeah. You know, like our big explosion that in the first uh, 10 minutes of the movie, that's real. That's 2,200 liters of uh, fluid. Um, our big battle scene is real. That's two actual Huey helicopters, 25, 50 stunt performers, another 50 extras, a dozen cast or two dozen cast. It's all real and shot um, by John Toll. Right, I was going to say, I remember that it was... Yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah. a reason it looks as fucking good as it does because the guy shot Legends of the Fall <laughs> and Braveheart in the Thin Red Line. And and we shot it on like film and like well, it's exactly what you were saying about your approach to your yeah, film. That's right. Which is that Stiller did not approach it like as a lazy comedy. It he was not a comedy as, as an as apocalypse now. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And and to that end, he gets John Toll and uh, you know and 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 it has this Stiller knew that like Scream. It has to function as the thing it's making fun of, right. you know. It was like it was so funny. Like Nolte on set said, "This will this will be strange love." McBride on set said, "I think this is like Scream," and I think it's kind of a fusion of the two. Right. Yeah. Um, I should let you go soon. We could talk forever about a thousand. Yeah, things. same here. But <laughs> but just to mention a couple other things, I'm excited for your also uh, on the comic book side. Oh, cool! Thank you. Your chapter house. Yeah, give, give me a sense of what's on tap for you and what your involvements in this. I'm just curious. So um, I am uh, first. I'm an investor, a part owner of the company. I own 20 percent of Chapter House Comics out of Toronto. Um, in addition to that, I'm also the chief creative officer. And so that is uh, a pretty far-reaching purview that it, everything from does that cape look awesome to does that font work to world-building and mapping out arcs and how can we get this big-ass bad guy uh, to be an event for all of our characters. And, and, and I just... Um, the, the sort of mission statement of Chapter House dovetailed with my mission in cinema and television, which was giving Canadian kids stories about them. Right. And Canadian comics is such its own strange, weird history where it flares up and disappears and flares up and disappears. And um, the first era, what's referred to as the Canadian whites, all these black and white things that were printed, was during World War II when there was a paper quota. And so no comic books were leaving the States. So all these Canadian kids had no comics all of a sudden for five years. Necessity being the mother of invention, all of a sudden we have the first uh, sort of run of truly Canadian comics. World War II ends, we disappear, and all the American comics come back. In the 70s, you have Captain Canuck. You have Richard Comley in his house, uh, drawing in pencil crayon, uh, printing it himself, gets this book on shelves. And, and in spite of the fact that it was an independent, pub, independently published comic that ran for three years first, disappeared, came back for a year in the 90s, disappeared. And then Fatty Hakeem, my business partner, guy who started Chapter House, 
he said, like, Canuck needs to be done properly. In spite of the fact that it's an indie comic that only ran for two years the original time, and in spite of the fact that it's always relegated to the back of every comic book shop in Canada, every single guy my age knows who he is. Jason Eisner was like, I have Canuck number one. Like, we all know Canuck. Mm -hmm. He's just in a street fight for real estate and shelf space against Batman and Superman and Spider-Man. So what we're doing at Chapter House is taking Canuck and all the guys from the 40s and everyone else we can find, all of these earnestly Canadian homegrown legacy characters from our past, rebooting all of them under one shared universe. Um, and, and, And really, it's about whether or not the comics are awesome and they are because all most of our artists and writers earn their trade apply their trade in Marvel and DC and happen to be living in Toronto and they're all patriots as well. And so we all see what this can be and how we can have a dope comic that happens to take place where, where we live. And, um, it's a pretty special thing and we just want to give Canadian kids comics where they can see themselves. Well, it sounds like you're doing everything that like you love, and that it's personal to you, and, that, and that's great. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping this. I know you have a horror film that you want to direct. Yeah. that's hopefully next on tap if you can get it together. You know? Yeah, and hopefully there's even an announcement during TIFF. Amazing. So, so we'll see. All right, I'll look out for you in yeah. Toronto. Um, honestly, uh, come by anytime you oh, want. Oh man, thank let's, you. Let's this was such a pleasure. Time. That was a lovely, lovely chat. Thank you, thank you for the kind words as well, and no uh, I, thanks for having me. All right, I'll see you soon, man. We did it. That was awesome. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. (laughs) 